Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, uh, I'm Richard Porter. Uh, I'm a writer and I suppose a podcaster as well. And um, for many years, I was the script editor of Top Gear and then the Grand Tour. I technically still am, but there aren't really any scripts to edit. So I write books and I do other TV work, a sort of script doctor for people, which you don't get credited for, but that's fine. Just try and fix things in other people's words or write stuff fresh. Um, And that leads me into all sorts of weird places. I wrote something for Mark Wahlberg last week. (laughs) Really bizarre. I never met him, but it's just that's the kind of world of the freelance littlest hobo writer. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. And welcome to this week's Driven Chat Podcast. My name is John Marker and I am sat, as ever, at Caffeine Machine with my esteemed colleague, Amy Shaw, who's currently taking photographs whilst leaning in towards the microphone. Hi, Amy Shaw. Hi, nobody would know, would they? Nobody would know because mm-hmm. that's damned silent shutter. Yeah. It's actually quite discerning when you're sat there going are you taking this picture or what it just looks like i'm perving down the lens at anybody mm. who points at yeah maybe i am who knows you'll never know that that is true and as you heard from that spectacular opening line we are joined <laughs> by somebody that i mean i um richard i'll be honest i've been looking forward to this episode it must be about a year since we started talking about the possibility of you coming onto the podcast I well think. i'm glad you said that because you did email me quite a while ago didn't you and i said oh yeah i'm really sorry i'm 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 quite busy at the moment. But then when I realised I was coming up here to Caffeine and Machine, yeah. I emailed you and said about that podcast. Yeah. And I was driving up here thinking, have I just invited myself to John's <laughs> show? And is that bad karma or horribly self-censored? I hear you've got a podcast. Do you want me on it? <laughs> well, good for you. Yes, we do. Yes, I do. And I mean, this this is an episode, um, as, you will, as you will hear through my, my questions throughout this interview, as to why this is so significant. Uh, but yeah, to give you a bit, uh, or to give our dear listeners a bit more of an overview, I mean, I've, I've come to the conclusion that if you're listening to our podcast, chances are you already know who Richard Porter is, um, because you've probably listened to Smith & Sniff, your podcast. It's, it's, I suppose it's a possibility. It does fairly well. I think you get a, f- a few more listeners than us. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I, I see you in We're the always charts. in that top ten together, which <laughs> yeah. I, I'm chuffed about. And but, uh, um, i that's the thing. I think, I was going to say it stops us getting complacent, but to be perfectly honest, I, I mean, uh, we are complacent because we just turn the microphones on and talk. Yeah. It's yeah. two middle-aged men who both like cars, but also um, like discussing other things, like E17's terrible video for Stay Another Day, which we were talking about in, I think, the last show. And... I I don't know that we ever really think beforehand about what we're going to discuss. So, I mean, complacency doesn't enter into it, but nor does sort of organisational strategy. We we are often at the moment the number one UK-based yeah. car podcast, but I don't know why, and I feel like our position will be short-lived because I see the effort that you guys put into this, and you oh, have no. actual guests on, so you have that kind of texture of of different voices every week. And and we don't have that. It's just two two blokes 
just talking as they might in a pub. Which I appreciate is, I think, what people that enjoy is, I, about yeah, it. I think Because we've heard it, enough yeah. feedback that that's what, what people seem to hook into is it's like having a pub chat, which, uh, you know, at its worst means that we never stick to the topic. And yeah. it's not because we've been drinking. It's because we just can't focus on one thing. And I think sometimes people do get frustrated because they go, I think you're about to tell an anecdote about... <laughs> yeah. There's one which I've just actually... Yeah, well, with the Sade thing, it's just so bizarre. The power of... Of, of putting something like a podcast out there where people can then get in touch with their views, recollections, stories about things you've covered is quite incredible. And we've mm. realised we have an incredibly knowledgeable listener base. And it doesn't matter what, we'll talk about traffic lights or something. And then someone will go, I'm just sorry to email you out of the blue, but I'm a traffic light engineer. And just to correct you <laughs> on a couple of things, you go, that's fabulous. Because now I, I, I think it's, it's sort of that terrible condition of being sort of a, a card carrying nerd that you you harvest information yeah. wherever you go and one of the things i mean you know saying we, we don't really produce the show one of the little sort of if you like format points that's ended up just clattering into the the way that we do it is at the end i try and give a little bit of information a little trick sort mm. of trivia nugget about something that's not car related and i've started collecting those but quite often i feel like i would have remembered it anyway yeah. if somebody told me you know what was the one I thought there was one that I was told the other day um, about the guy who wrote Feeling Good for Nina Simone also wrote Goldfinger for Shirley right. Bassey you just kind of go, yeah, that yeah. Amy's noise is exactly the noise that you want. You just go, that's like, it's like, not the most interesting thing in the world, but it is sort of interesting. It's, it's mildly interesting trivia hmm. or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's Which the kind is, of thing you're definitely going to tell somebody else. I know for a fact I'm going to tell my dad that fact. Yeah. I know it. And it's, it's not, you just go, oh my God, that's life changing. It's not that. It's just, oh, interesting. Yeah. Get you. So, um, I don't even know what point I was making. Is it? Yes, I have a podcast. We're currently doing quite well. I, you know, I, I, I foresee our, our impending doom at some point or other. But let's enjoy it while we can. No, I, I, I can't see that happening. Um, I, I've got the podcast on one of my little subjects that I'll get to. But I think before I start, just in case for whatever reason, there's anyone out there that has been living under a rock and but yet is somehow involved in this uh, automotive interest car world and they don't know who you are. I've written down a little bio of, of what I think you've done. However, I mean, it's brief. Um, and you're more than welcome to go, actually, no, I didn't do that. And don't forget to mention that. So I've got you down. Richard is a scriptwriter for Clarkson, Hammond and May for BBC Top Gear and later on Amazon's The Grand Tour. And more controversially, he was the secret satirist for the automotive world through his mysterious yet frankly brilliant website sniffpetrol.com does that cover it yeah that's all true i would say oh good yeah um, well i mean you know I, I, we could quibble about frankly brilliant but it is definitely <laughs> true I, I did technically do still have a website called sniff petrol which is um actually how i got my job on top gear yeah because i'd worked with jeremy briefly on old top gear and then he left i stayed there for a bit longer and then i left um I did a couple of other things, and then I, I found myself unemployed and decided that I would you know, call myself a freelance writer. Yeah. I didn't actually do an awful lot for probably the first year, two, year and a half. I remember, you know, when you're freelance, you have to do your own accounts. Yeah, I couldn't do that. that. Yeah. Well, I couldn't. I just, I'm so bad at math. I failed GCSE maths. Yeah, I'm me just, too. So, did you? Yeah, I'm awful. <laughs> yeah, awful. Yeah. We should have some kind of handshake <laughs> where, we, where all the fingers are the wrong number. Um, and I... I I just couldn't bear it, so I got an accountant to do it, and then he sort of showed me what I'd earned in the first year, and I kind of went, 
well, that's just your fee there, isn't it? That's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's awful. So with all this time on my hands, um, I got a new internet provider at home back in the days when they used to go, and you have some free web space. And I went, ooh, well, what should I do with that? So and we're talking late 90s here. Two, uh, 2001. Okay. And I had this vague idea. I was a big fan of the American website, The Onion. Still yes. going? Fantastic. Still brilliant. It is still yeah. going, yeah. yeah. And... Um, also, Charlie Brooker's TV Go Home, if you yeah, remember that, of which course. was fabulous. And so, rather conceitedly, I thought, I'll do a car version of that. Or, yeah, more The Onion, I suppose. Spoof news. Yeah. And um, so used that free web space. Couldn't get it to work. Asked someone's advice, and they helped me eventually get this thing to sort of blunder onto the internet. And then it just slowly grew an audience. I didn't put my name to it, mm. but an early reader of it was Jeremy Clarkson. And... He sent an email to the contact address through the website um, using a very, very rude word, <laughs> but accusing the person behind it of being actually somebody else, a mutual friend of ours. Oh, no way. So I wrote back to him and went, um, Jeremy, it's not him, it's me. And then he just wrote back and went, call me. <laughs> Brilliant. In fact, I think it was a separate email. I think it was a separate email that just said the subject line was call me, which is very Jeremy. And then, so I did. And we had a long chat, and he just went, your website's brilliant, I love it. And that was it. And I sort of came off the phone going, well, that's nice. Jeremy likes my website. You know, there's nothing I can do with that information, except he's a bit of a hero of mine. You know, I grew up reading his stuff in Performance Car mm. before he was on the telly. And I think he's a fabulous writer. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I think when, when people say, what do you do? And I always say, I'm a writer, because I think that's the thing. I, I, no matter what else I might do. Just, and, I, and I think Jeremy is broadly the same. He mm. would always call himself a journalist. Yeah. And we're both super, super nerdy about words. Yeah. You'd probably object to me saying super, super. It's ridiculous. Americanism <laughs> shouldn't say. Two but supers. Two supers. Don't need it. Make sure there's a comma between them if you're going to do that. Um, and, and so th to have, you know, the sort of nodding respect of another mm. writer and someone who somebody I think... Somebody you look up to as well. It's well, an amazing thing, isn't it? Do you know what's funny is that after a, a while later... Because then what happened was I went to a car industry lunch, sort of informal thing. Never normally would get invited to, but I, the, the head of PR for Toyota organised it, and he'd found out who I was. Behind oh, right. So before you'd publicly announced Yeah. It. And I think he wanted to basically bring me along so he could go, look, everyone, I'm ah. the one who've unmasked. I, I, here he is. Yeah. This is Sniff Petrol to a load of other journos and industry mm. people and um jeremy showed up and he went what are you doing and I, I was like what now and he went yeah come on i'm going back to paddington he got the train down from oxford and he um he he said get a, come on let's get a cab back to paddington i want to talk to you and he did the sort of blues brothers we're reforming the band speech about we're bringing top gear back and i want some of that sniff petrol kind of attitude in the show right and so that's how that started so let's break down that timeline slightly so you were involved in the old, I'm going to say, um, the, the pre-Dunsfold format of Top Gear in, in a capacity as a writer? Or I, was, I was junior researcher. Okay. Um, which is just a researcher who's paid less, really. But also, yeah. I think it, it acknowledges the fact you've never, in my case, I'd never worked in TV before. Right. It was a lucky break. I, I was working in a shop, and then uh, John Bentley, who I guess mm -hmm. people might know as... I know John the, Bentley, yeah. The gadget He's show. really into photography as well, so I know from, yes. I see him more at photography shows than I do he, in car shows. He really is, isn't he? <laughs> I had an amazing experience with John Bentley once, because John, bless him, John gave me my break in TV. John popped up mm -hmm. on the end of an episode of Old Top Gear, and it was a Thursday night, half an hour, Right at the end, 
before the credits, I guess, maybe even after, when we're looking for researchers. Send us three ideas in your CV, and we'll let you know. No way. And I went, oh, hello. And then didn't hear anything for ages, because it turns out you're not supposed to advertise jobs like that on the BBC. John got into loads of trouble for it. <laughs> well, imagine the amount of letters he would have got. Well, they got thousands, as it turns <laughs> out, and they didn't expect that, so they had to process them all. Obviously, obviously they, there were people, they had a few people apparently wrote in and went, I'm not giving you ideas. So they could no just throw everything. Oh, yeah. so I'm the man for like, the job, but yeah, I'm not telling you anything. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Need to know basis, mate. <laughs> so it was funny, actually, because one of my ideas, they were very apologetic when I went for my interview, because they'd just done a very similar idea on the show. And they were at great pains to go, we didn't copy your idea. And I was like, I don't care. I work in a shop. I'd be very flattered if you had. <laughs> but fair enough either way. Um, and, uh, and John, yeah, John was the one who eventually gave uh, four of us jobs as junior researchers on the show none of us had worked in tv before but that's the thing john john's sort of quite maverick in that respect and mm. i think he thought fresh blood i want people who can bring something new to it but on the photography tip or sort of on on the on the kind of john's tech side i once lost my mobile phone just before christmas and my insurance said we can't send you a handset for two weeks but we can send you a sim card so i went that's okay i'll go mm. and buy a cheap handset and you know this was years ago when you could get a handset for like 15 quid so I was walking down Oxford Street one night just before Christmas and I bumped into John. And I said, oh, I'm, just, I'm desperately trying to find a cheap handset. And he went, oh, how fascinating. Can I come with you? <laughs> and I went, um, yeah, I suppose so. And then, so I went to one shop and I went, you know, what's your cheapest handset? Oh, well, about 35 pounds. Oh, I don't really want to spend that. I was only for a couple of weeks. And John's there going, oh, it's incredibly interesting. Can, can, I, can I film you doing this? And I went, not really, John. <laughs> he's pulled this camera out of his pocket that he's got. So... We finally went to a shop. I went, I'd like a cheapest handset, please. And they went, yeah, we've got one, this one for £15. I was like, that's fantastic. I'll take it. And the blokes then just sort of tried to ring it up on the till. And he suddenly went, wait, are you that guy off the gadget show? And John went, I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing became incredibly surreal. This guy was going, well, but you are here. No, you know, I'm just an observer. It's fascinating, fascinating. And it's, it's, yeah, John's brilliant. I mean, I owe John an awful lot, an awful lot, because you know, he, he was the one who went, oh, we don't care this bloke works in a shop. We like the cut of his jib. His ideas yeah. somehow worked for us, and, and we think he'll fit in well with the team. So that was amazing. That was so, you went, start. so you went into Top Gear at that point, and I'm guessing that was when it was based in Birmingham. Yeah, it was in Pebble Mill. Pebble Mill, that's it. So then Clarkson left, mm. and... Did that mean your role stopped, or was that where was that that interesting chapter where Top Gear kind of went away? And I'm trying to harp my memory back now to the interview or the conversation that we had with Brian Klein, who's yes. one of the old directors. Yeah, yeah. And he he recapped on this time where it all seemed to go away for a bit, and then Wilman and Clarkson had come up with the idea of somehow bringing it back, but with a completely different name. I want to say Carmageddon or something. Oh like God, that. yes, it did have a terrible other name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this was pre. This predates that. This was uh, end of 1998, beginning of 99. Jeremy decided that he, in his words, he'd taken it as far as he could. And I, th- I remember him coming into the office, or we met him somewhere, and he said he'd been sitting at home watching... Paddy Ashdown announcing his resignation as the Lib Dem leader right. by saying, I've taken this as far as I could. And he said he had this sort of moment of realisation that that okay. applied to him too with Car TV rather than the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Very little overlap between the two, I would say. But he, um, he, he realised that maybe it was the time to step off. Yeah. And, and so he did. He just said, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm done here. But no, the show then carried on in that format on a Thursday night because we still had Quentin Wilson, Tiffany yes, Dell, Vicky Butler-Henderson. Um, 
uh, we then one of the jobs that John gave me quite soon after I started was to find a new presenter or new presenters mm-hmm. and you know sort of pre-internet well we had we, <laughs> we had this is how long ago it was we had an internet computer in the office and oh, it I wasn't it. very good it was dial-up just I guess. one in the corner yeah <laughs> I didn't have email when I started I had a computer on my desk. I mean, the BBC had realised that was kind of the thing to have in 1998. But, but yeah, it, it was, I was then part of the email rollout a few oh, weeks wow. later. So I started my job with no email. We sort of didn't need it because there was much more phone bashing and just yeah. kind of, I mean, even going and seeing people. Very old-fashioned idea now. Mm. But you would sort of ring someone up and go, can I have a t- chat with you? And they'd go, yes, let's meet up instead mm. of emailing or whatever. And um, John said, you know, fine, you draw up a list of people, younger people who might become presenters, the next generation of people. And so what I did, I just bought a big stack of car magazines and I went through and I sort of tried to figure out who were the younger people on the staff if I didn't already know. Went back to John and he went, oh, we've seen all these people. And, right. and it, was, it was really hard to find. And then it, there came a very surreal point when he went, why don't you have a go? And I think he said something like, well, you're sort of presentable. Why don't you have a go? <laughs> Thanks. Okay. And then we went down. This is John and cameras again. John had some kind of, actually it was a, a like a, God, it was probably high eight or one of those formats that's gone away, video camera. Mm. And we went down to a park near the office and I had to talk about a Peugeot 208, I think it was. We decided I was going to say some stuff about it because it was quite new at that point. 207. 206. Jesus, really, we're going back in time here. Um, but there was no Peugeot 206 there. I just gestured towards a bush and went, oh, wow. now this car's very interesting because it's the end of this thing. And, and, and it was just one evening. It was really weird. And then we, John stopped filming and he went, I thought that was rather good. And then the next thing, I was being sent to Germany to go and review a Subaru Legacy that had just come out with a film crew. And I did two items. I did one... Uh, about car colours and how they're decided which was terrible and didn't go out <laughs> and I reviewed the legacy which was passable enough to go on TV but only just I think because they were short of an item and then I was due to go to Spain to do the new Seat Toledo as my next presenting gig and John just came up and went we're going to send Steve Berry <laughs> and that was the end of my TV presenting career so it was I think a blessed relief for everyone concerned because I wasn't very good at it and it was that, that thing you know where they, they say the camera adds how many pounds it is yeah I, I was a much younger, thinner man back then, and the camera seemed to remove pounds <laughs> in, a, in a very unattractive way. And when my one item that went out on the telly, the Subaru review, had aired, a mate of mine rang up and went, you never told me you were ill. No. Well, I'm not. And he went, well, you bloody looked it on TV. <laughs> and also, my arms, I, when I dance, which I, I try not to do too much because of the injuries, but the my arms become incredibly long, and my wife calls it the octopus. But a TV <laughs> camera has the same effect. I just become this... And, and, and Jeremy, always been very funny on this that he said in his early presenting career he suddenly realized your, your hands sort of swell to the size of hams yeah and you don't know what to do with them and and you do and I, ever since i had that pointed out to me and having had experience of it and going what the do, what do i do with these yeah. things that you watch tv presenters and sometimes the ones who are good make it look effortless and sometimes you do see the less experienced presenters sort of have spare hand syndrome they're just like I'm just gonna pop this guy over here he's gonna rest it on this table like nobody notices and it's, it's it's extraordinary how um you don't sort of think about this stuff when you're watching i don't know Dermot o'leary consummate professional and good tv presenters i think 
relax you into what they're doing. Yeah. They're easy to watch. Jeremy's a great case in point. You just yeah. sort of, whatever he's doing, you relax along with him because it feels like he's got this. And mm-hmm. Dermot O'Leary, Anton Deck, these people who are very, very good at broadcasting, yeah. make you feel comfortable watching them. And there are some presenters, I, mean, I can't, you know, I don't want to say anything I could remember, but you're sort of watching going, this is like watching somebody carrying a stack of plates. Yeah. This could go over at yeah. any moment, and that's not comfortable to watch. So yeah. um, I can't remember what I was saying now. No, that's <laughs> oh, Well, basically, John gave me a break presenting, and I, um, I, I messed it up because I wasn't very good at it and stopped doing that. But then I got back to trying to find people who could do it and uh, screen tested a load of people they hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And we got down to a final two, which was Adrian Simpson and yeah. Richard Hammond. And we gave the job to Adrian because Richard was very, very good. Mm-hmm. And Adrian was quite new to presenting. He was a journo at that point. Yeah, and Richard had been doing Men and Motors yeah. or one of those other channels. So Richard came. He'd written a script. I remember this because he, he, we got them to talk about the Rover 25. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> Richard had done a very good script. Really pro, yeah. well structured, well thought out, and then he delivered it beautifully. Yeah, and I went, "He's our guy." Yeah, and um, John, in that way that you know, the same way he'd given me a job, I suppose he went, "No, let's get the sort of raw material, mm. not the fully formed professional TV presenter." And we gave the job to Adrian, who actually became really good. Now, yeah. Adrian's fantastic because he also he's he's a really really nice guy, but he's sort of got these these ambitions that he cannot let go. And one of them was after he'd been doing TV for a while, he went, "I want to be a newsreader." Never done anything like yeah. that. And he went, he just badgered Sky until they gave him a job <laughs> as a newsreader. I was just going, I wouldn't have the brass neck. But Adrian's just fantastic like that. He just he sort of just goes, "I want to do this, so I'm going to try and do it." And he did it for a bit. And he, he got quite good at it. And then he went, I've done that. So he went and did something else. I always think that's an amazing attitude to have. I just, I just, I couldn't yeah, summon just up that. Do as, go, ahead, go um, ahead. And, and he, it. yeah, it was probably the right call in that, I suppose we got somebody who, um, you know, we could kind of build up and who was ours. And I think mm. John always wanted to do that because it's what he'd done with Jeremy. Mm. Jeremy had never done TV before. And yeah. John was the one who put him on telly and, you know, the rest became history. So, um, it was it was the right call, but then when Richard came into screen test for the, the new iteration of Top Gear that started mm. in two thousand two, um, I said to him, "Oh, we met before," and he went, "Yeah, I remember you." And I went, "You you, you came into screen test with a thing," and he yeah, he said, yeah, "I remember it. We're over twenty five, yeah." And I was like, "You know, you almost got that job," and he went, "Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> I don't want to know that." And I was like, "No, okay, sorry, I shouldn't have said that before you go and screen test for this job that you really <laughs> want again." Yeah. But that's the thing: we'd had a whole day in a studio in West London uh, screen testing people. Richard was, was the last or one of the last people. And I remember standing at the scene dock door, which was open, watching Richard get into this slightly scruffy left-hand drive 911 that he was touring around at the time because he couldn't afford a right-hand drive. <laughs> <laughs> the time wasn't cheaper. And, um, and, and Jeremy and I were standing there having a cigarette and watching him drive away. And Jeremy just went, I liked him. I liked him a lot. Oh, and that was it. And we, we, yeah, we, we offered him the job this time around. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, second time lucky. So that was 2002. And the lineup at that point was uh, Clarkson, obviously. Then Hammond got the job. Yeah. But it wasn't James May, was it? No, it was uh, Jason Dorr, mm. who was a car dealer. Well, a car dealer turned car dealer trainer. He used to train car dealers yeah. to, um, you know, sort of sell better and and he was actually really interesting. We never managed to work this into the show, but he was really interesting on that side of his career. You know, talking about those, all those techniques like mirroring and things where you try and mm. you know, win over somebody by 
mimicking their body language and their breathing and all sorts. And we could never figure out how to put that on TV because that was where Jason was... was yeah, he came to life. Really, yeah, really interesting. And he was great with a lot of stuff. And I think, actually, in retrospect, you know, we failed him because he was new to TV. Yeah. And the fact that he could stand up there and do it. The pilot episode, one of the pilot episodes, which was disastrous... We got him standing up there reading auto cue with an earpiece in, you know, where you can hear people telling you to do stuff while you're trying to oh, speak. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible skill. And he'd never done it before. And he did it, I thought, perfectly well, considering mm. he was new to it. Then we got rid, thankfully, of the auto cue and the earpiece for, for the series. But we were still expecting him to be a fully formed TV presenter. And I think because he was so good at it as a natural. We never thought to actually go here, you know, here we can help you out with some of your rougher edges. We just sort of let him get on with it. And then the BBC went, well, we're not sure about him. I mean, they weren't sure about Hammond. <laughs> right. Hammond famously, got, we finished the first series, I think it must have been, or maybe the second. No, it must have been the first series because that's it then. Jason was let go. and um, But Richard got the call. It was just before Christmas. Someone from the B rang me up and went, hey, yeah, thanks for your work on the series. We're not sure if we're going to keep you on for the second series. Anyway, listen, happy Christmas. Talk to you soon. Oh, oh God. Yeah. And then he just had a horrible Christmas holiday, yeah. wondering if this, this job that he'd wanted this his whole life yeah. was still going to be his. And thankfully they saw sense. And, and then, yeah, and then we, we, got, we got James in and that sort of, it all clicked into place. Albeit, you know, after a while, I always have to remind people, including myself, that we didn't put the three of them out in the field together until I think the fourth series because the right. idea was they go off and they do their individual things out in the field and then they reconvene in the studio. The studio is like the yeah. treehouse. That's where they come together and meet up and talk. But they never go out and do stuff together. That would be strange in our mm. way that we conceived this show. And then we lumped them together in, I think it was the fourth series, where, where we got them to buy cars for £100 mm -hmm. and suddenly went, Hello. Well, that's interesting. This works quite well. One of the questions that I was going to ask, and I asked this question to Philippa Sage when Amy and I did a podcast with mm. Philippa Sage mm. back in. Um, I heard it. Oh yeah. gosh, that was earlier this year, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and um, one of the things I wanted to know was at what point, as a observer, either on the production team for the events or the production team for making the show, was there a moment, even in that, in, in the very early days, or perhaps it was up to season four where you all kind of looked around and went, oh, hang on a minute, these guys are going to be massive. Because, of course, now you mentioned Clarkson, Hammond and May and you're, you're, you're talking the level of fame. It's like talking about you 2 or It Queen. is quite weird. <laughs> they would certainly get mobbed if they just walked down a high street. Yeah. yeah. Almost anywhere in the world. Yeah. And probably more so than you 2 if I'm honest. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. probably shouldn't yeah, call them anything like you 2 We won't downgrade and the edge. <laughs> but was there a time, did, could you see that happening? Or, or was this just, oh, this seems to work and hopefully it'll go on for a couple more seasons? Um, it happened so slowly. And although I, it's a slightly cringy word, it happened so organically mm. that... I, I don't think we did sort of see it happen. There weren't any sort of moments. There were these little landmarks, I suppose. Obviously, Richard's crash yeah. propelled the show into a sort of new league of visibility, if you like. It's a pretty horrible way for it to happen, mm. but you know, it did, it did have that effect. Um, it was little things like, remember Heat magazine? I do. And they used to do a thing called Weird Crushes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and suddenly, Richard appeared in Weird Crushes, and we were like... 
That's funny, isn't it? It's one of the, one of the guys from our stupid little car shows yeah. in Heat magazine. They're usually you know full of boy bands and whatever else was contemporary, sort of in the early two <laughs> thousands. And and um and then Jeremy and James started appearing in weird crushes. And Richard, I think, got promoted to just actual crushes. <laughs> it was like wow, it's like going into the Premier League. You're just a normal crush now. You're not weird anymore. This is big style. An actual and, man. And it was things like that. And and I suppose then when we were travelling around and it became. I mean, that sort of, I don't want to sound ungrateful, it sort of almost became a nuisance because we were trying to film stuff and yeah. people would just be walking up to the presenters and going, oh, mate, and you'd be like, sorry, there's, there's like three cameras there. <laughs> I'm doing a thing. Don't mind just stepping back. And, I mean, talking of that level of fame, and, and I think it's, I mean, I don't know where you two stand on this spectrum, but I think that our guys get more attention in the street than, say, Brad Pitt would yeah. not because people haven't noticed Brad Pitt but, but because they don't feel they know him mm. he Completely. is yeah. the character actor Brad Pitt and there'd be a lot of look over there it's Brad Pitt look don't look now don't look don't look our guys are like well we know them that's exactly mm-hmm. it we had this in this very room actually almost a year, about a year ago uh, Mike Brewer who's involved in our radio show mm. um, we were having a similar conversation about this and the fact that a lot of people you know Mike as you, as you know can attract some fairly controversial feedback yeah. with oh people my God, that, that don't man particularly has the like patience him. of a saint <laughs> yeah. on social media. So people either love him or hate him, but on both angles, they he will get told about it. Yeah. And the thing is, and we, we discussed this, and the conclusion that I came to, in exactly the same way as you find with Clarkson, Hammond and May, and even, to a certain degree, certain influencers, the, the high-end influencers, the ones mm. that are getting millions and millions and millions of views. The reason I believe that people don't see them as that figure of, oh my God, it's Brad Pitt, let's not go and interrupt him because he's Mm. clearly very busy and important. It's because these figures are being consumed almost exclusively in the viewer's free time, at their leisure. They're seeing a character that they can relate to, that they're watching at this point and at the time that they feel comfortable watching. They're doing things that are entirely relatable, driving on roads that they drive on, driving Mm. cars that they own. All of this adds up to this equation of, huh, Jeremy Clarkson, he he thinks that's funny. I think that's funny. He drives that car. I used to drive that car. So suddenly, when you see Jeremy Clarkson in Tesco, you go, mm. "All right, Jezza." Yeah, you know, and <laughs> it it's, like, it's exactly that. <laughs> and and I think there have been. And, and Mike was saying this that he's he's discovered it where people come over and they'll just spark up a conversation, mm. and then almost mid flow they'll go, "Oh my God, hang on a minute, we don't know each other at all." Yeah, and I'm <laughs> telling you about my dog's disease um, mind you it's easily done i think I, i've said all right to at least one newsreader because i've assumed it's someone i know and they've gone oh wait no it's hugh edwards of course i don't know him he's just off the news so it, it is very easy to fall into that trap but yeah. i think it goes beyond that with i mean yes i imagine brewer probably has it yeah. exactly the same where people feel like because you, you're playing yourself on yeah. camera you're not in a role it's just you yeah that's it and they think they know you and one of the ones that always used to make me slightly cringe was you know people come up to Hammond and go all right shorty you short ass hamster and stuff and you go that's mean that's you wouldn't talk to a stranger like that and remember this is a stranger you think you know him but you're not his friend you've Mm. never been to his house you don't know anything really about him you know the telly version of him Mm. and those aren't your jokes Mm. Jeremy can say that to him and James can say that to him because They are his friends. Yeah. Not you. Not for you. You know, and I, and I can see yeah. why people do it, but it's it's just that it 
it, it's when and I I don't remember any instances of people actually sort of having the penny drop halfway through and going oh wait sorry it's, I think once once they've committed to it a lot of people just go I'm in on this yeah and maybe we will become best of friends <laughs> he'll invite me to a barbecue oh no he's walked off okay, he's phoning the police that's weird yes <laughs> The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Um, I suppose that is the thing when um, people, you know, hear about you and your your job, they do think, okay, is that trio genuine yeah. as their kind of connection that they are, or is it scripted to to be in kind of like you know created to become this this trio of friendship? But it sounds like you, you three, you four, even have have all kind of got this relationship, and you kind of bounce off each other, and you think, okay, we can script this bit and make this natural thing that we can put out to these people watching yeah. it. What would you say is the percentage of what is genuine and what are things that you've kind of like spiced up a bit to be able to help conversations out well there's in terms of the way that we scripted the show i mean particularly top gear and then i suppose the grand tour in the first three series when they followed more of that format of out in the field back to the studio um it would vary so big road trippy special type thing very little script the script would be uh here's the introduction here's what we're going to attempt to do now, in terms of what else was written down would be we're gonna they're gonna go here and then we're gonna make them do this and then we're gonna tell them they've got to do this to their cars and then we're gonna tell them they've got to go to this place. It's one of the things that always I, I, I sort of had this moment of realization when we were making Top Gear and I said to James, I went, Do you know this show is ridiculous? Mm-hmm. Because you're grown adults and we absolutely exist on the premise of we were told we had to do this. You could just tell us to sod off. <laughs> yeah, the producers told us we had to all immerse ourselves in freezing cold water. Just say no! And he's like, oh, yes, you're right. I didn't realise that. <laughs> but that, that would be the extent of the script. So uh, a script in the sense that people might think, you know, it's, and Richard says this, and then Jeremy says this, and then Richard comes back with this. That wouldn't exist in that. And they are all very funny at ad-libbing. Plus, we just roll cameras forever. Mm. So you can cherry-pick the best bits. Mm-hmm. Not everything they say is gold. An awful lot is. And I always think, actually, in that respect, that the, the quickest ad-libber of the three of them is Richard. He's incredibly hey, funny. Really? And I think he doesn't get the credit for how quick-witted he is. And that is also pays great dividends in the room when we would do the way we would construct things, particularly like the news segment on Top Gear, which became Conversation Street on the Grand Tour, for legal reasons. <laughs> um, we would get a load of press releases and news stories, and then we would just talk about them. And it was my job to write down what was being said. And then I would go away and I would turn that into bullet points. Mm-hmm. And if you ever wanted somebody in the room who would just go bam and give you the punchline that you were looking for, it was very often Richard. Yeah, Jeremy and Rick James as well, of course, because mm-hmm. they are very, very funny, very smart men. But Richard is a hell of a on-the-spur-of-the-moment punchline guy. Do you think you can learn to be funny? Uh, I think you probably can, but I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll find out soon with sort of AI. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. I always think sort of trying to be funny is a bit like, it's a bit like jazz. It's sort of a bit freeform, but you have to kind of know some of the rules. Mm. I was doing it on Twitter today. There's, have you seen Renault have announced that the replacement for the Kadjar will be called the Australi... No, wait, it's just called the Austral. So it's like Australia, but they've lopped off the last two letters. (laughs) So I did a tweet where I just said, and it'll be followed by the, I can't remember which countries I picked. Oh, Russ was one of them. So it's Russia with two letters missing. Obviously, it's the I and the A again. And then the United States of America. And it's the last, and then and lots of people started replying, but they weren't obeying the rules, which is you've got to take the last two letters off. And the sort of writing purist in me went, no, no, no. 
It, you, you've got to stick to the original rhythm of it. Got and it it's doing wrong. it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not going Bond wrong. It's just, and it's things like that. And you kind of go, I'll just give it a rest, Porter. It's not important. But I think it, it, you, you have to sort of be a little bit dedicated to some structure and some kind of system of rules. And there is a rhythm to mm. humour. Yes. And you notice it when it's not there. You know, when I think there's some uh, actors are better comics than others. Mm. And you just take it for granted when it's there. But then, you know, I always think like Russell Crowe is not good at comedy. He's mm. a bit lead footed. He just doesn't. And he occasionally does yeah. like the good guys or something like that. And you sort of go, just be a gladiator, mate. You're good <laughs> at that. You're really good yeah. at that. But I just think he's, he's a bit flat footed comedy wise. I mean, I don't know. That's just my personal opinion. But I think that's the, that there is that sort of jazz feel where, where some people feel it in their bones. Yeah. And that may be harder to replicate, but I don't know. Can you learn to be funny? I think you're... I'm not sure, I don't know. I, I, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I, I guess I sort of did or tried to. I mean, I've written lots of jokes in my life. Well, that's the thing. And, not and all of them very good. To, men- to refer to that, I, I think being funny in person, you know, in conversation, mm. I think that in that aspect, you can perhaps learn about comedy timings and knowing when to stop or how far to push something because you can mm. pick up on people's body languages. The skill set that I see in you, and I see the same in Clarkson, and there's a few other writers that I really enjoy reading, and that is something that really jumps out at me. Getting comedy right in written words is, to me, a level of genius that I just can't comprehend. Clarkson wrote once, and I've I've spoken about this before, it was one of his columns, and it was called How to Dispose of a Dead Seal. (laughs) <laughs> and I think, well you're off to a good start with the title yeah, with that idea. that's just fabulous the article itself was in relation to something very mundane like a Ford Focus mm. but the story was about how his house on the Isle of Man unfortunately or fortunately yeah, I do leads onto a one. beach yes. and a seal had unfortunately died on the beach now what Clarkson did in his column was write about how he planned to dispose of the seal and I think ultimately how he did now I won't give any details away because if you want to go and find the story I I don't want to spoil it however that was the first piece of literature that I ever read where I physically couldn't read anymore because the tears (laughs) in my eyes from laughing were so immense I remember sitting on my bed I think I would have been a teenager sitting on my bed howling because it was just so funny and since then, I've read certain bits of literature. I've written a lot of what you've written, Richard, and thought that is just so brilliant because there's no room reading there. There's no comedy timing. It's just, is, well, is it yeah. the luck of the reader that they fall into that same humour level? Or? I suppose it has to be because, yeah, you can't, you're not getting any feedback on it. You just have to do your best and you do what you think is, is funny. But I think what you've also got is, I mean, Jeremy's a very fast writer frustratingly fast writer that I would say is the jazz bit he's yeah. just got a good idea of what needs to go down that's the jazz is going on the page but then he is an absolute stickler for detail and yeah. he will go back and he will rewrite I mean I used to say that writing Top Gear was a lot of just sitting in a room having an argument at what's a funnier word raspberries or hat <laughs> because it was just that we'd, be, we'd have a line in the script the studio script something like that and it, and it would be no, I think it's better this way. And I go, no, no, it's not. It's this, this, and this. And I'd be getting a bit narky because it'd be like, I'd written the original line and he wanted to mess it up as far as I was concerned. He'd be like, no, I promise you. it's better. And I sort of have to give way because he's the one who's got to go on telly and say it. And then James would be there go, 
what about brochure? That's quite a funny word. And then we go, oh, hang on a minute, we're onto something here. And then Hammond was like, and it's just, and that was part of the great fun. Of, and I suppose that is, again, that's the musicians improvising. But at the same time, it is that worrying over a tiny, tiny thing that would seem inconsequential. Mm. But actually, it's not. Things can stand or fall on one word and, and how it's delivered. But, but the words have to be right in the first place. You know, you, you can try all you want, but bad scripts are bad scripts. So, you, you know, you try and make them as good as you can and you just polish and you polish and you polish. And I think the same would be true of prose that mm. you, well, I can say you cannot over polish something. I think you can actually. And you also, you know, there's a popular expression about polishing a poo that may come <laughs> in here. But it, it never hurts to go over and refine and refine and refine and yeah. just, again, it's just going, hang on, I'm going to say hat here instead of raspberries. Maybe that'll make this sentence. Because there is a rhythm there within sentences and, mm. and sentences upon sentences. So there's a rhythm within paragraphs. And, you know, yeah, I, I drive myself nuts sometimes trying to get that. And I think, you know, often I come back and go, mm, oh, I didn't, that's not that. that. I can't remember who said it. There's a famous writer who, who said, you, you want every sentence to be clean as a bone. And I, I always lives with me you want mm. it just to read so effortlessly yeah that the reader doesn't have to sort of go back and read yeah, it again recapping. you know i think someone like james joyce may have disagreed with that because you often have <laughs> to read things like that many times and still not quite sure what he's getting at but that's a you know literary fiction is a different thing to mm. a magazine article about a fiesta you want that to be quite an easy read i think yeah have you found that you've been inspired by other writers or is it something that's come, come naturally to you as, a, as your personality Oh, no, totally inspired by the writers. I suppose, and, sorry, but the reason why I ask is, but I bet that John, you, you've always said you've been inspired by people like Clarkson and his writing. And mm. just thinking about kind of you, Clarkson, uh, people who are very, very good, witty, funny, at what you, good, terrible word. Now I'm thinking about how I'm saying things. <laughs> but like you, like who, if, um, you know, the, the, the next, the kind of writing, car writing generation backwards, what would, you, who have you been inspired by? Um, I mean, I, I always liked Jeremy's stuff, even before he was on telly. And, you know, he wrote for Performance Car in the 80s. And that's the thing. He was the first car writer that I remember reading who actually was, was funny. Because mm. car writing back then particularly was very po-faced. What Jeremy did, and I know I'm part of that generation as well, is he inspired a whole generation of car writers to try and be funny with yes. varying degrees of success. Yes. And I include myself in yeah, that. Me you know, too. Sometimes <laughs> I kind of go, oh, God. I, I, I sometimes occasionally just like you know we'll be staying in a holiday cottage or something and there'll be an issue of evo from 2004 for some inexplicable reason in the bathroom and i'll go and i'll find my column and i'll go oh, i've done exactly this. oh dear what was i doing there this does not work at all and it's sort of a bit dispiriting but i before jeremy did those things in performance car it was rare to read not i mean there were people who were very being very funny but being very witty uh, sometimes but but it was rare so i like the fact that that i suddenly gone there's this guy who's actually being funny and that's when jeremy was an early fan of sniff petrol and and would say oh, i like your website i remember thinking well of course you do because 20 years ago you'd have done this if yeah. the internet had been yeah. around when you because because he was trying to force cars which aren't inherently funny to be funny mm. and and it's the same thing you know saying sort of inspired by the onion i, I started stiff petrol but i did i do remember sort of thinking what am i doing here mm. what's the point in this cars aren't funny f1's not funny it's very po-faced and then sort of figuring out that actually the more po-faced it was the funnier it was yeah. It's it's Formula One is hilariously funny when it's very pompous and ridiculous, mm -hmm. and it's very easy to poke fun at the characters within it because they seem to have no sense of humour. So you mm -hmm. can then 
you know, being sort of a cheeky schoolboy mentality about it, you can then just burst some of their <laughs> pomposity, hopefully. Um, but I, I think that, you know, Jeremy was was doing that with cars when few other people were. So I was always a big fan of his. Um, in terms of sort of, if you like, the craft of writing, I always really liked Russell Bulgin, who I know you were talking about with Mikey Harvey the other week on the show. Yeah, but, right. um, because, again, he was doing something different. Mm. And... And again, I think he inspired a generation of writers to sort of try and emulate, often very badly, that style that he had, which was was unique. And it was really bad. when God when Russell died, which was, it was terribly sad. But he was a columnist for Evo at the time, and so I was sub-editing for Evo. We got loads of letters from people right. expressing their sadness uh, uh, that Russell had died, and some of them. They sort of tried to write like Russell. Really? And it was excruciating. <laughs> I just went, don't do that. Yeah. Why? I know, yeah. that's not a loving tribute. That's just, it's sort of ghoulish. Please don't. It's, you know, the sentiment is lovely, but what has, what has entered your head to go, I know, I'll just, I mean, I don't know, I found it, I found it a bit awkward. We, you know, we, we published the ones that weren't like that because <laughs> it would have seemed even worse to put it in print and as if we, we were not taking it seriously. And you know, it was for a lot of the guys. I didn't know Russell, but a, a, a lot of the guys there did. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it was a very sad time. But um, he, I thought, was just a fantastic writer for sort of density of writing. And I did used to sub-edit his columns sometimes. And it's almost impossible. Because, you know, when you, you you, your job is to make the words fit on the page because mm. they'll arrive in a Word document. They should be broadly to the word limit, but it's not as simple as that because mm-hmm. words are different lengths. Yeah. And you, someone who's used a lot of words, oh, God, he's put onomatopoeia in twice. It's not <laughs> going off the end of the line. So you're just trying to make it all, crunch it up to fit it in and all that. Which, with most writers, you can just nip out a word here. Where, where, you know, we all occasionally use a superfluous word or you can switch something for another word that's a bit shorter. There's a lot of just finagling around. Russell's stuff was so exquisitely written and so dense and mm. so perfect as it arrived. It was a nightmare if it was over length trying <laughs> yeah. to get it to fit. I, quite often, you just sort of go to the designer and go, could you just sort of like chop make, make the picture, picture smaller? Small. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Amy, I know that's no, probably a photographer's nightmare. You go, what? why is the picture so tiny? <laughs> why have you cropped it badly? Yeah. No. <laughs> but um, yeah, so him, and I don't know, there's loads, I mean, there's lots of people, Richard Bremner, who, I mean, it's a bit, I was sort of awkward saying this because I know Richard now. He's, you know, I consider him a mate, and but I grew up reading his stuff, and I just loved. Again, he has a great sort of, this kind of precision to his writing, but also a, a keen eye for for the kind of nerdish detail that I love. And um, who else? Is, I mean, John Barker, who again I know, you know, because he, he's one of the Evo crowd. I, subbing John's work was a delight because again, precise. John's an engineer. And he writes in this very precise way. I mean, he can be very witty as well. He's not sort of dry in an engineer's way. But the way that he technically constructs a feature, you don't have to do much to it. You just have to make it fit on the page because it's immaculate. The copy is immaculate. John drives the way he writes and vice versa. Very, very just calm, precise I mean, as a driver, he's unbelievably quick as well. There's been a couple of times, I was once in a car with John in a McGann R26R, I think, in Scotland, where I sort of, like, I totally trust him, but there was a point at which I was like, I'm going to have to say something, because, oh my God, we're going quickly, and I have children, and please, John, please. But, but he is he's incredibly good as a writer and a driver. Hmm. Um, there's lots of people, that's the thing. I mean, it's, I think it, it's 
all of these you don't have to sort of try and emulate these people but at the same time you do kind of pick up mm-hmm. little bits and pieces of what they do i mean mm-hmm. i guess it's the same in what you do you just you acknowledge that someone's good and then you kind of go well how can you know how can how can i get there but in my own way yeah. i want to be i mean i suppose it almost you want to go i want other people to be reading my stuff and have the same reaction that i'm having to this stuff which mm-hmm. is this is really enjoyable and it's informative and it's it's fun and it's 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 just a, a very fully realized piece of work mm-hmm. and sometimes you read stuff that's sort of shoddy and lazy and you just think put a bit of work in here come on <laughs> yeah no sorry <laughs> no i love it i'm enjoying the enjoying the, the stories um i'd like to know just going so going back to your writing now and to, focusing on the script editor role mm. at top gear um there's a couple of sequences that jump out to me there's some go-to I must look this up on YouTube because I want to have a little laugh sequences. (laughs) One of them, uh, which I know that you've talked about publicly before. uh, In fact, you did on the radio show that you recorded, the interview you recorded with Andy, where you referred to the the Peugeot story. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm sure all I'll need to say is uh, the word maniac and... Uh, <laughs> refer your cast your memory back dear listener to um a, a a room which i don't think was actually in paris do you know what it wasn't well, it wasn't that far from here it was in oxfordshire so this i guess people listening might have seen it it was towards the end of our era of top gear and we wanted to make a film about the history of Peugeot. Mm. Um, i'm very proud of that film because people remember the silly slapstick comedy element of it but yeah. if you go back and watch that i defy you to say that you don't learn something about the history of absolutely Persia. right yeah and i think at our best when we were working well as a team editorially that was what we brought to things is that we still were constructing stories mm. and if it had just been the comedy it would have been flimsy and stupid and and potentially quite annoying just get to the cars but because it combined information and a story with a bit of levity it, it did work better than if it had just been one of those elements yeah and uh yeah we we i can't remember how this came about except that i i'm going to claim it was my idea though i'm not sure <laughs> sorry it was my yeah. idea um i think it was well certainly because we said uh, let's do this thing where we Peugeot went from making some of the most beloved enthusiasts ordinary yeah. cars you know a bog standard 306 or a 205 something like that it was a lovely thing to drive and mm. then suddenly they weren't lovely to drive Peugeots were sort of leaden and, and they looked terrible where once they'd been quite pretty and we had this idea we'll recreate the moment in the Peugeot boardroom where they decided to make <laughs> rubbish cars <laughs> And I do, I mean, I'll definitely take credit for the fact that I went, well, it has to have a view of Paris out of the window with the Eiffel Tower, because like a terrible American movie from the 80s. And this is one of these times, and it happened to me quite a lot working on Top Gear particularly, where one day you're saying something in the office, the next day you're standing somewhere, well, not the next day, usually it's a few weeks later because it needs setting up, but you're then suddenly standing somewhere watching an army of people make a flippant comment you made in the office into reality. Yeah. And in this case, we're in a hotel sort of country hotel had this wood panelled room that looked like an old-fashioned boardroom this massive window and we had at great expense a green screen erected against the outside of the window against which then in post-production we could put the generic Eiffel Tower shot but 
it was really expensive and complicated. It took them all day to put this bloody scaffolding up to put the green screen. And it was windy. It was a nightmare. And then the cameraman, or, 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 or um, sort of lead cameraman, um, he went, it's a glass table. The glass is reflecting the green, oh, the yeah, green screen. And in post, you can't key in an image mm. if the green is also cropping up elsewhere because the, the same image will appear there and it'll look terrible. So if you notice in that scene, there's an awful lot of stuff on the table <laughs> and it's there to mask the bits where the green was reflecting. And, um, and then when we shot this scene, but then, and I, I mean, I wrote about this in my Top Gear book at, 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 at probably too much length. They laid on all of this slightly offensive French food, snails and things and autolans. Many bottles of wine. And bottles of wine. And it wasn't prop wine, it was just wine. <laughs> and we're sitting there and we've all got glasses of wine in front of us. So I just started drinking. Because I didn't have to drive, we were going straight from that hotel to another hotel, and it was the last. It was the last uh, shoot scene of the day, and I knew that the car I'd been driving on the shoot was staying at the first hotel. So it was like, I'm off the hook. I'm going to have a drink. And James May somehow had the same idea. <laughs> Everyone else was much more restrained, but James and I were absolutely ratted by the end of it. And. Um, and the whole scene was, I mean, we've, we recorded for ages as well. There's probably somewhere still a cutting bin of all of the outtakes of us just all going, arr, 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 with a big red wine stain. Right? Well, I saw all this, me and James. And um, uh, that's what I think in the finished cut, there's a bit where James sort of bangs the table in a rather vigorous way. That's because he's, he's gone a bit giddy on cheap red wine. Um, in fact, because James is quite a wine connoisseur because he made that. He made that wine show with Oz Clark. And I remember did, yeah, they opened a new bottle of wine for us because the, we'd finished the first one. And, and I remember James going, actually, that one's quite good. It <laughs> 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 turned into a wine tasting. Because that's the thing, it took forever to set up because of the reflections on the table and various other issues with lighting and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And I was sitting there going, this is just, this was just a joke. joking. <laughs> yeah. Just a joke. The worst one for that was on the Grand Tour when... Um, we had a meeting. There's a lot of this stuff in TV that you don't even realise goes on, just sort of housekeeping or snagging. You know, you're trying to work around tiny problems that you just, you know, you watch something like one of those big Ants and Dex shows and you just go, well, this plopped out fully formed as a, mm. as a thing, as a piece of television because they know what they're doing and everybody involved knows what they're doing. They know yeah. how to make a big, that's not to do night show. And actually there's been hundreds of meetings about you know, just stupid stuff like where are they coming out from onto the set? Yeah. Oh, well, that's too far away. How do we cover the walk from there to there? Because they've got to hit their marks. and stuff. You know, It's just boring stuff, but it needs to be taken care of mm. to make TV look professional. And we had a meeting when we knew the format of the Grand Tour and there's going to be the tent, and the tent is going to travel around the world, as happened in the first series, before it was realised that was so expensive it had to stop. <laughs> and we had the windows through which you could see some of the local scenery, whatever it would be. We suddenly went, We've no plans to use that outside space in any way. And it feels like a waste. And the other th item on the agenda for the meeting was, what do we do about not having celebrity guests on? The lawyers have said, don't have celebrity guests on. It will make it too similar to Top Gear. Right. We ignored that in series two. But <laughs> at that point, we were under the cosh. Do not have celebrity guests on. And the question was, how do we explain why we're not having celebs on? And as a throwaway mark in a meeting, I went, what if the celebs arrive outside and every week before they can make it to the studio, they're like run over or something? <laughs> and people carried on talking in the meeting. Then Jeremy went, whoa, 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 hang on, everyone, shoot. 
can't get past what Porter's just said. <laughs> Why don't we do that? And so we did. And it was terrible. I mean, it didn't work at all. It was, a, it, I, I mean, I think it would have been better if we'd been able to pre-shoot the celebrity accidents, but they had to be live, so they worked for the audience in the tent. Yeah. So they were always a bit, you know, I had these visions of like, a bin lorry comes at maximum speed <laughs> through frame and absolutely demolishes Sting or something like that. But you, obviously you cannot do that. You could if you were shooting it with stunt people yeah, yeah. and cuts. and you could. But no, one shot, like it's a live show on a stage in a theatre, you cannot run over Sting with a bin lorry. <laughs> so it ended up being a bit half-hearted and rubbish. But anyway. So I remember the, somebody fell out of a plane and somebody blew up a jet That one was quite good, actually, because we did put cuts into that because that was the first one. That was Jeremy Renner. That's right. And that one, we got the real Jeremy Renner. He was in a plane. and Yeah, yeah. and he did. That was, there was quite a lot of effort went into that one. Uh, cutting to then, a, you know, a, a, a flight suit full of bricks or whatever it was <laughs> from a crane with an electric release on it that dropped. Quite, I mean, it was quite dramatic when it hit the ground. Made everyone jump. Oh, <laughs> God, that's quite heavy. It's like, well, people are heavy. Jeremy Renner would weigh that much. And um, Yeah, it, it, it's, that one was okay, but it was generally pretty lame but it was a throwaway remark in a room the same as hey we should recreate a boardroom and pretend it's in paris and it's like oh god this is actually happening no 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 i was joking (laughs) i was just joking are there any a bit like that peugeot film are there any other films that be be it or not your exclusive writing or idea that Mm. you're particularly proud of that you look back on is there any there any other clips that you might look up on youtube and go i just want to watch that again um I don't really look it up on YouTube because it's, I mean, I think the thing it's is like when you Googling work on... yourself. Yeah, oh, I do that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, it's more that you just sort of, most of the time, you're looking back and you're kind of going, oh, I'd have done that differently. or mm. this. But um, I, hmm, there is one that I have, I will admit, I have looked up on YouTube not that long ago because I just wanted to remind myself if it was funny as I remember was the Interceptors skit, which was the three of them pretending to be sort of 70s style secret agents and it was all very knockabout yes. silly. again it was a sort of addendum to or addenda anyway it doesn't matter um to, <laughs> words okay. nerds words nerd um it was it was the add-on to a proper road test of a, of a sort of resto mod jensen interceptor mm-hmm. so again it would have been stupid in isolation but it sort of was acceptable tagged onto a proper test where uh information was dispensed mm. and you saw a car um, and we just sat in the office brainstorming all those kind of 70s kind of cop, not cop show, more like sort of private investigator, sort of men who make problems go away kind of shows. And and we just wrote down a big list and then we went away and filmed them all. And it was really good fun. And that sort of stood up. But in terms of stuff that like proper stuff that I'm proud of, I mean, there was one that I had almost nothing to do with quite recently on the Grand Tour where they went to Mongolia. Mm-hmm with a flat pack truck thing mm. that they had to build yes. themselves and they drive across Mongolia. And I just loved that. I thought it was, it was, the scenery was beautiful. They were great together. My one big contribution to that was that we got the original designs of this truck that we'd had made from the people who were going to create it for us. And, and one of our producers showed it to me. And I just went, it's not lovable enough. Mm. It needs to have this sort of ramshackle mm. and it kind of needs to have a face and then people will like it as another character on screen. Because I think sometimes when they do these big trips, the cars become oh, another character. Yeah, Oliver yeah. the Opal, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Richard's yeah. case, being the, being the classic case in point. <laughs> and so I, I asked them to redesign it. And that was my one contribution to that. There was no script, really. There was a little intro at the top. And that was it. But 
I think maybe it's easier for me then to sort of step back and go, well, the rest of this is just them at their best. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also true to say that my favourite bit of the Grand Tour French special, which is coming up, Whenever that's released, I can't remember. A couple of weeks. Is it? it may, by the time this goes out, it may be out now. But okay. Soon, if not now. My favourite bit of that, and I didn't have an awful lot to do with it. I, I was just, I, I did some, uh, idiotically, I, I appear in it as a, as a driver in a race, but I didn't, and I did a bit of the car research. But um, there's a bit towards the end where Jeremy and Richard just go for a drive in a Citroen SM. And it's just the two of them just chatting nonsense as they do. And it's great. You just kind of go, okay, it's it's that thing we were talking about earlier on about why I think you know, maybe people listen to the podcast that Johnny and I do is because they just go, sounds like the kind of blokes I'd hang around with and exactly. talk the same things about. Yeah. And, it's, and I think that's always been at the core of the appeal of Clarkson, Hammond and May is they seem like the mates that you wish you had yeah. or they remind you of your real mm. mates. But either way, there's that sort of sense of I'm part of this gang by proxy mm. and you know I, I'm happy to hang out with these guys for extended periods of time and watching Richard and it's, it's sort of the least showy contrived part of the French special I think it's just very natural and it's but but, but it's, there's nothing to it it's two blokes driving along in an old car mm. but it has something very pure and very endearing about it I think yeah just focusing on that that relationship that obviously we build up as viewers watching Clarkson Hammond and May we we you almost become enveloped in that friendship and you do as you say you feel like you're part of it and therefore I think that's why it's been such a huge success I can only imagine the the, the scale of how that would be from the production side of things when you're with these people every single day hours long <laughs> traveling the world you know, the, the old saying, yeah. you don't know somebody really until you've traveled with them you've seen them at their tiredest yes. and at their happiest yeah, their yeah, saddest yeah. their drunkest and um, I'd like to just cast your memory back and I know this is something you've written out in your amazing book and on that bombshell and we'll, we'll get to the book bit in a bit but the the time where it all went wrong mm. shall we say so when Top Gear changed because of that incident mm. involving Clarkson and, and one of the producers how was that for you because I can't help but think you must have really felt like and much like everyone else on the on the team you were really onto something good at that point. You've, hmm. You're on top of the world, making the most watched car show in the world, hmm. the most entertaining show, streamed in just about every single country in the world. As you say, Clarkson Hammond and May can't walk down a road anywhere without being mobbed. Hmm. What was that like for you at that moment where you thought it's potentially all crumbling away? Um, it was... I mean, I was just... I was angry. And I was angry at Jeremy. He knows this, you know, hmm. he's sort of been through this, but... Because I, I was angry because he he spoiled the party. Mm. Because as you say, we were onto something. We, you know, I think we were past the point where we could surprise people. Because I think once you've done some of the things that we've done or did, and shown them to be possible, you know, the show that sailed a pickup truck across the English Channel is a show that can do almost anything it puts its mind to, or at least try to, mm. for your entertainment. <laughs> And sometimes fail, sometimes succeed. But either way, nothing is out of bounds. Mm. So we were beyond that phase. But I think when we were in our groove, and there are some of the films in the later series that I'm still very proud of. That Peugeot one, I think, is mm. is, is, is good. Um, and it, so we definitely had more to give and more to make. Mm. And so... And we were just... Yeah, it was hard work. That's the thing. I mean, 
it, it was a very exhausting show to make and the bar got higher and higher I mean going back to you know series four we put the presenters together for the first time 100 pound cars the big challenge was they drove to Manchester <laughs> and that was it yeah there's nothing to it yeah. and there were a few challenges at the airfield but it wasn't you know it wasn't sort of overly contrived and set up it was pretty simple mm. and we had to sort of top ourselves and put more work into it so it was hard work but it was also still really good fun mm. and I think we were still making a good show and so for it to all to come clattering down I'd always hoped we'd be able to bring it to an end on our terms and do it with something approaching dignity yeah and this felt just like we sort of juddered to a halt mm. and it's never really said that you know Jeremy wasn't sacked as such no he had just come to the end of his contract. Yeah. And the BBC had offered all three of them a new deal individually, uh, which was, you know, I think it's no great secret, you know, sort of more money and better terms and all this sort of stuff. They couldn't then invite Jeremy to sign that when he just punched yeah. one mm. of his teams. So he was, you know, he was just let go and he wasn't sacked. They couldn't sack him, but that was the thing. If he'd been under contract, I think they could have suspended him and then he could have come back. So it was really unfortunate timing. But it did mean the show had to end in that form. Yeah. And so I was very angry. And then I was just sort of you know, really sad about it. And I remember my wife saying to me, I was sort of moping around the house. And she went, you know, you're in grieving. Mm. You're, 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 you're uh, in mourning, I suppose she, she would have said. And I was like, what? No, I'm not. She, no, you're, you're grieving. You're grieving like you've lost something. Because you have lost something. Yeah. You know, I worked on that show from... 2002 to 2015 mm. and that consumed all of my 30s yeah which is i think you know your 30s are quite an exciting time of your life because you're sort of probably more settled in who you are and you're hopefully your career is going in the right direction and as a result you've got a bit of money to do the things that you want to do but it, for me personally i didn't have children at that point so mm. you know my wife and i could go screw it let's go to vegas yeah, I mean, not that we ever did, but we could have done. <laughs> and that's the point. And and so I, you know, I had a great deal invested in that program, and I think it probably it was a loss. It yeah. was it was something that hit me quite hard, and it took a while to get over that and to start speaking to Jeremy. And to his credit, you know, he realised all was not well. Mm. There's some fairly publicised things that were going on in his life that led up to that unfortunate moment, and he sort of disappeared off to get his head together. Yeah. And then he got in touch with me and said, you know, we could spend the rest of our lives ignoring each other or we could go and have a chat. So we did and we had another cup of tea mm. and, um, and sort of didn't really talk about our feelings because we're English men. But <laughs> we, we, I, I think we knew that the bit that I realised that all was sort of on its way to being well again was that after we'd been for our cup of tea that evening he he um, texted me a picture of a sign with a poorly used apostrophe <laughs> and that in its own way was just us bonding again because yeah. we used to share our despair at apostrophe misuse and reflective re reflexive pronoun misuse we, we still to this day you know we'll, we'll send messages to each other going myself has just been watching yourself on the television <laughs> it's so infuriating um, again word nerds that's what it is and yeah. i think there's there's it's i as much as being interested in cars might be common ground that jeremy and james and richard and i have it's but the, the common ground is is in is in words, and particularly where Jeremy's concerned, he sent me a message actually a couple of weekends ago because they'd run one of my reviews in the Sunday Times, 
because I sort of fill in when he's mm. I'm one of the people who fills in when he's busy on his farm. And he sent me a message to say he'd enjoyed my review yeah, and it made lovely. him laugh. And I was just mm. like, that means a lot. Yeah. Because I know that he, first of all, he's a voracious reader. He reads so much stuff and he's, you know, I've read novels on his recommendation and he mm. comes in and he'll sort of suddenly tell you about some, you know, amazing feature he's read in the magazine. You've got to find it. It's brilliant. It's one of the best bits of rising. You know, he's, he really cares about this stuff. So when he says he's enjoyed one of your pieces, to me, that's, that's a huge compliment yeah. because mm. you know he's not just read it casually. He's read it from the point of view of a professional writer and he's kind of gone, you know, this is up to snuff. This is, this is mm. all right. And, and that's, that's important. You know, I, 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 I suppose in the same way if Martin Amos went, I quite enjoyed that. I mean, yeah. go, well, you, you've done some good books, Martin, <laughs> so I'll take that. Thanks yeah. very much. Yeah. That's never happened. I don't think Martin Amos <laughs> reads car reviews in the Sunday Times. Maybe he does. David Baddiel tweeted about one of my jokes from a Sunday Times car review. Oh, brilliant. And that was like, one of the Mary Whitehouse experiences found one of my jokes <laughs> funny. Wow, that's, that was student me would have been really made up about that. I mean, actually, you know, non-student me was quite pleased just because it's sort of, you know, I suppose it's, it's, it's someone who you hope knows a thing or two about turning a joke going, yeah. Fair play, well met, fellow joke maker. And it's sort of like, oh, thanks very much. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. So you made your men's with, with Clarkson and, and the band got back together effectively. Mm. I know that makes it sound very easy. Just everyone got back in a room and, <laughs> and off they went. And what was, the, what was the emotion like getting back into the swing of things with Amazon? Because, of course, it's a very different organisation to the BBC. I'm yeah. guessing budgets were sizably different. Mm, yeah. um, what was that like as an emotion? Was it exciting? Was it a bit scary? Well, you see, because I, 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 made, I made up with Jeremy but I was still undecided about going back right. to work with them because I just felt I should go and do something else. Yeah. Should put on my big boy trousers and go and, you know, knapsack on my back, go and find my fortune somewhere else. Mm. And um, one of the things that won me over, probably the biggest thing that won me over was then, uh, I can't remember, probably Jeremy messaged me and went, come for lunch with me and Hammond and May. Nice. Well, he probably said Hammond and May and me because that's grammatically correct. But, um, and so I went for lunch with them and the three of them are in really good form and I laughed so hard mm. that I could barely keep my food down and it was almost like being a kid and realising your mates are out playing again and you're not there. Yeah. And it, it was hard to resist after that. Mm. And then I went to the office and they'd got this new office that was sort of their space, again, our space in um, Chiswick. And it was, 
it, again, it was hard to resist because they're in there just making telly again. And there's something very compelling about making telly yeah. when you've done it before. You just kind of go, oh, you know, sort of stuff is happening. And mm. so it was hard to turn down. And what was great about that office for the three years when we did the sort of original commission of three series for that show is that the presenters, because it was then their company making it yes, for Amazon, mm-hmm. they treated it like a normal job. And they were in the office most days. James, you know, sort of sometimes James staying late because he was doing something else, probably like building an airfix kit in his <laughs> office. And someone going, you're going to lock up, James? And he'd be like, oh, yes, we'll do. And you'd be like, this is weird. <laughs> One of the most famous people in, in the car, well, in the world, I suppose, yeah. is making sure he turns all the lights off in the <laughs> office to go out. And you just sort of think, you know, you might assume they have people who worry about this stuff. But actually, you know, they are all quite good at just... And, and it, was, it was hilarious to have them coming in sometimes and going... Should we have a meeting or something? And like, because yeah. they were almost like children playing at being business people for a while. They were like, because they they haven't had office jobs that way. They used to come in the Top Gear office regularly, but not every day because it wasn't necessary. Mm. So, do you think it gave everybody a kind of a new motivation to create something new, different, bigger, better, whatever? Partly, you know, being in the office every day and being their own thing, and also bigger budgets. Perhaps was it something that you thought actually let's go into this and really do something that's never been done before, or was it kind of a um, let's see what we can do to to move it, forwards with this do you know what i would have i sort of imagined we could take things further with the grand tour i imagined that we would be able to do not just because the budgets actually mm. that you know necessity is sometimes the mother of invention and i think we did some of our most innovative things in the days when top gear had a much smaller budget mm-hmm. but um i just thought it was a new chance to do different things perhaps and i i i, I, I probably couldn't sort of immediately say what those should be and in the first series, the second episode was this sort of weird time travel movie thing where they they were supposed to be like um, it's almost like SAS soldiers game, dealing with hostage a hostage situation at this military training camp yes. in Jordan. And I remember when I uh, actually agreed to go back, um, my first day in the office, one of the directors said, oh, this is, we're about to shoot this. One of the first things we're shooting, look at this. And he showed me the script which Jeremy had written. And I went, this is really self-indulgent. Are we sure about this? And he went, well, Jeremy's very keen on it. So I didn't say anything. And actually, it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant and it was very different. But we put it in the second show almost to say, things are not going to be what you're expecting. Mm-hmm. First show, very much comfort food for the hardcore yeah. fan. Cars, up the yin-yang. Second show, let's do something a bit quirky and mad and, you know, hard to hard to get your head around on first viewing. And people hated it, mm. absolutely hated it. And I think it's actually one of the things that, repair, you know, bears repeat viewing. It's got some lovely bits in it. It's very funny. It doesn't have a lot of cars in it. And I think that upset yeah. the hardcore. And that's always a mistake, ultimately, because the hardcore are the sort of nucleus that pull in the more casual people often. Mm. Mm-hmm. And... So I think we got scared by that. We went, oh, no, no one likes this thing we've done that's different. We better be careful. And so yeah. I feel like we almost creatively retreated to a safe place. Mm. And in retrospect, I wish we'd been a bit more brave. But, you know, it's easy to say in retrospect. And mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, the great thing, actually, in terms of getting the show made about having them all in the office every day was you could just go and talk to them. So that you just go, yeah. oh, I've got this idea of something that Richard could do. And you just go, go up to Richard's office and go, hey, you got a minute? Do you want to do that? And, you know, it's just like that. And, you know, Jeremy, is, Jeremy works harder than anyone um, in terms of sort of worrying about editorial and little details about that. I think the rest of us, 
were much better at going home, doing other stuff, thinking about other things. Rich, Richard and James, you know, had sort of other shows they were doing. And mm-hmm. also James would just quite happily go home and tinker with motorbikes or go to the pub <laughs> and talk to his mates and, you know, be more like a sort of normal human being. But there you'd get in in the morning and Jeremy would be like, right, I've had a complete rethink about that thing we were talking about yesterday. And he'd be like, we were only talking about that like five o'clock last night. And what you've completely, what, what, what have you been doing? It's like he he just couldn't switch off, and that's to his credit. I mean, that is so much the the heart of Top Gear and the Grand Tour was because Jeremy cared and put so much thought and effort into it. But it also, when he was actually there, it was you could sort of he could go. I, I, I want this to change. Can can someone sort of do this and get that? And can someone find out if we can get a zebra? in Reading tomorrow and, you know, the research team would go yeah, okay yeah we'll get on to it and then, but then you could go in and you'd go they can't get a zebra but they've got a giraffe and he's like brilliant that actually works better right hang on no stay here stay here I want to talk to you about this and then you'd sit and you'd write a script and it'd be like and it was just and it, so in terms of the efficiency of getting things done mm-hmm. actually quite good that was that was a big plus the Grand Tour just all being in that big office love it mm. books yes right now I know before uh, it's, there's no secret that you've written a few books mm. um now, I made a list in my phone of how many books I'd written because I'd, I'd forgotten, yeah. and it's it's more than I thought. Yeah, I think. Um, hang on. It's like twenty five. I think boring car trivia three would be my twenty fifth. I'm gonna have to look <laughs> this up now. Hang on. Anyway, not that it's really important. Some of them are awful, but um, here we go. Yeah. So uh, no, twenty sixth. Twenty sixth. I think maybe twenty seventh. The list, I'm not dating the list. What <laughs> still flies on there as well? Twenty so seventh. Over twenty five books. Over twenty five books. Get all, uh, all of these. Uh, over twenty five books delivered to your home. <laughs> I um, I mean, the, the main one that jumps out for me uh, is and on that bombshell. And I think the the main reason for that, from a, a purely self indulgent point of view, is at, at the age I am. Um, early to mid-30s, I think is, is uh, a, a safe way of saying it, a safe way of saying 34. Um, for me, I think I fall into this category and, and very much with a lot of my mates who are all Top Gear obsessive fans. So if mm. you think back to 2002, I would have been, what, 13, 14 years old. Okay, yeah. At that point, suddenly, Sunday evenings have become quite the spectacle because firstly, mm. it started off with amazing car shows, car reviews, uh, four seasons in, they start doing adventures. Yeah. And ultimately, as a young, impressionable teenager, I've grown up with Clarkson, Hammond and May. Mm. Now, it wasn't until I'd say I was maybe late 20s that I discovered your book, which okay. in a weird way for me, filled a missing piece of a puzzle that I didn't even know was missing. And that was, who's made this these people this funny who's doing this who's done this and I have to be careful because I don't want to sound too um, praising because I know no, you know, we don't want to do that not that you're a fanboy or anything like no, that no no no, no. but it's without a doubt you know I, I've said this a few times I said this to Quentin Wilson I said this to Vicky Butler Henderson a couple of weeks ago as well mm. on a podcast um, there are certain people in this industry and for years I always thought oh it's probably Clarkson Hammond or May that have turned on this little light bulb that has somehow at the grand old age of 34, got me now sitting in a room where I record podcasts and do car reviews and do some writing about cars and ended up running massive car events all over the world. There are without a doubt, or without doubt, moments and people that have switched on little light bulbs. And I think, Richard Porter, you might be one of those people for me. Which I is can bit... switch it off again if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it, and it's a really interesting thing because I remember reading your book 
In fact, I got the audiobook first, and we won't dwell on it. <laughs> we won't dwell on the audiobook. Because well, the fact that some of the car names are pronounced wrong because well, got it was an the fact to that read it. whoever read the book has clearly never watched an episode of Top Gear in his life. No, I think I was a bit narky about that because they said, "Oh, we're going to get this tremendous actor to read out the book," and I went, oh, "I can read." Yeah, I've got a voice. Well, I, well this and was the thing. Went, we'll do the intro then. You can come and do the intro. And, and I went, oh. so I went to the studio and did the intro. And I have to admit, after just doing the intro, I was quite tired. <laughs> I know this podcast would suggest otherwise, but talking a lot, which I do do, <laughs> as you'll notice, is quite tiring. Yeah. And, and so I let the actor get on with it. And I sat and listened to him for a bit. And I, I did think um, that he, he probably wasn't familiar with the show, yeah. but he does have a very nice speaking voice. Yeah. And it's about the pacing and the modulation true, and all that stuff, true. which I do not have the skill to do. And he did. So it was for the best that he did it. But then afterwards, I found out he pronounced like some of the car names wrong and said like Porsche 928 or something. Oh, that's like that. it. Yeah, going, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I remember hearing your written recollection of certain things that happened and how things were written and how things unfolded and it was mm. clearly being read by somebody that hadn't seen it and I remember thinking oh god well it's odd it. I think that's why I said to the publisher is this a bit weird yeah. because it's in the first person and it's my yeah exactly you know, yes yes I was hearing word, but it's <laughs> a slightly American accent reading uh, and but that does, he went the publisher went oh don't worry it happens all the time and he, I think he said um, Johnny Depp read out Keith Richards' autobiography and everyone was happy with that and I was like yeah but that's Johnny Depp <laughs> Um, I did subsequently then go and read the book because I thought that's going to be the better option for me to get a grasp of it. And of course, that, if anything, it kind of brings your writing to life when you read it as actual words rather than listening to somebody else say things and pronounce them slightly confusingly. But I remember reading the book and I remember thinking genuinely, I really want to meet this guy someday because it's because <laughs> because I hadn't realised up until that point that you were that missing piece to this amazing show that so many people I am one of I dread to think how many millions that have spent their youth watching Top Gear their teenage impressionable years and it kind of shaping their humour and their ambition to do stuff with cars whether that's to work in the industry as I so luckily do or just have an interest and maybe go out and think oh I don't need to buy a old Fiesta I'll buy something a bit crazy and mad <laughs> instead and I, don't, I, I, I do wonder, you know, how often does that ever play on your mind? That it's some, a show that is just so significant to so many people it's and you being funny, such actually. a crucial part. Well, see, I, there was a period when I think I got asked to go on a podcast or a radio show and talk about Top Gear. It's a few years ago, mm. like two or three years ago. And I said no, because I thought, I don't want to be one of those sad old people who's trudging around still living on mm. some kind of former glories and also just for the record you know you're saying who are these people who are responsible for this show it's not just Clarkson Hammond and May and it's not obviously they were hugely integral to it yeah and their roles cannot be understated but there's a big team of, of people and they and, and you know credit to some of the brilliant producers researchers production coordinators production managers that we had that, that made that show happen because mm. sometimes it was you know, making miracles out of nothing. Yeah. Um, and in that respect, I think I had a very easy job. I was sitting mm. in an office and bash a keyboard. It's not <laughs> difficult. But um, I, I suddenly had this feeling where I was like, do you remember Little Britain? Of yes. course. There, yeah. was a, there was a character in that who would only talk about how she went to Molly Sugden's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Molly Sugden! Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah. 
I think I'm becoming a bit Molly Sugden's wedding about because <laughs> it's been what? So it's now six years since Top Gear of, of the iteration I worked on yeah. stopped. Mm-hmm. And here I am still talking about Molly Sugden's wedding, which is no good. <laughs> just, just, just don't do it. Just, just stop. It's, just, it's not dignified. It's pathetic. So I said no to this thing. And then more recently... And particularly sort of doing stuff with Johnny Smith and just mm. recently we've been doing some live shows. I know we, you, you came to one yeah. with me, John. And it was, um, we, we had lots of people uh, who were asking questions when we did a Q&A about Top Gear and then coming up to us afterwards, or coming up to me afterwards and going, yeah. the same sort of thing you're saying. Yeah. Top Gear got me through my teenage years. Yeah. Top Gear was on a loop in our student house mm-hmm. and all that, those, those things like that. And I suddenly thought, God, that show was really quite sort of important to people Massive. at certain mm-hmm. times in their lives. And what an honour to have been involved in something mm. like that. The reason I wrote and on that bombshell was partly because I had nothing to do because the show had just ended and I was a bit peed <laughs> off about that. But also, I was watching a documentary about friends and I was thinking, bloody hell, imagine being involved with a show that big. Yeah. Oh, wait, hang on. <laughs> sort of was. I mean, I know not as big as friends. Friends is huge and still is. But mm. Top Gear was... No, it punched above its weight. I'd more. rank Top Gear considerably higher than Friends. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I would. But um, <laughs> I, the, I just, I suddenly thought, I have this is yeah. these don't come along very often. These opportunities to work on something, and I mean, in my more reflective midlife crisis moments, I kind of go, "That's it. I've done it. That's the biggest thing I'll ever work on." Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think there will be a show that will be able to grow as I'm going to say it again organically yeah. as Top Gear did for a lot of reasons. You know, Sunday night being mm. an interesting part of that. When we got told by the BBC, it wasn't up to us, some genius within the BBC scheduling department said, we're putting you on Sunday night. And we went, what? We can't go on Sunday night. Sunday night's like Heartbeat and Antiques and Harry Seacombe and Anorak standing in front of a cathedral. It's rubbish. And that was why it was genius, because suddenly we were sort of bright and noisy and Mm -hmm. and we stood out on a Sunday night and we gave people something that uh, they might want to watch if they weren't into costume dramas and religious programming and all that sort of stuff so it actually made us stand out and it helped the show to to get you know get sort of get a a bit of a foothold and then of course there were things like Richard's accident which was not good but it did have some positive effect and the invention of YouTube Mm. weirdly came along right when we were sort of in our pomp but it allowed people in other countries to see little snippets of this bizarre British show and want to find out more and I think that propelled us to this you know, a mythical 350 million people around the world watch Top Gear. Wow. And, you know, we were told at one point we were the most illegally downloaded show in the world. Yeah. I was like, how yeah. do you know? Yeah, that's Are you yeah. asking people, excuse me, can I just tell me your time? Do you illegally download any shows? And yes. No, I mean, no, I mean, no. So it, it was sort of this perfect, not even a perfect storm, but a sort of sequence of events. And of course, pre streaming mm. services, TV's become so fragmented now. And everybody watches stuff when they want to watch it and they watch what they want to watch. And word of mouth is very powerful, but some shows just seem to sink without trace. And I think we were very lucky. We were in that sort of last tranche of old-fashioned terrestrial TV Mm. that gets dumped into people's living rooms and and you sort of worm your way into their affections, hopefully. And it will never happen again. And in my more sort of reflective moments I go well that's it isn't it I should probably just go off and live in a bothy and become an artist or something because I will never get to do the kind of ta-da big show that people you know it's part of anything else you go you go to sort of like a dinner party or something like that and people go what do you do and when you know when we work mm. on Top Gear you go I work on Top Gear and it would get a reaction I mean some people yeah. would go oh god I can't stand that man 
Oh, yeah, I can't stand yeah. that show. You idiots. What are they doing? You're wasting time. But some people go, oh, I really like this show. But yeah. either way, it's still, it's still a reaction. So it's, it's obviously still a reaction. Yeah. And it was often a, uh, a middle-aged man would go, Jeremy Clarkson, why doesn't he talk about boot capacity? But you'd get sort of, you know, I mean, a great case in point is an old university friend of mine who, who, who when Top Gear was sort of its height, very demure young lady, she's a GP, she was a huge fan of the show. She was always trying to tap me up for tickets and you would never credit her as being, you know, she was very cultured yeah. and used to go to ballet and stuff like that. But then she'd go, <laughs> can I get some more Top Gear tickets? We absolutely love it. And she'd be crazy. For, and so, so apart from the else, it showed that our demographic was very wide and, mm. and you know, and, and also our... Our, our sort of splits, male-female split and our age range and all of these mm-hmm. things were not what people might have expected or rather they evolved to what people yeah. wouldn't have expected, I think. Because we kind of, going back to saying about, you know, don't alienate the hardcore. We started with the hardcore, but the hardcore pulled all these other people into mm-hmm. their orbit and empirical evidence suggested to me that, you know, we were a kind of Sunday night viewing that was acceptable to all the family. And if you take your sort of cliche 2.4 children family, the kids liked it because it's just mucking around yeah, explosions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Dad liked it because he wanted to have a look at a new Lamborghini. But mum would tolerate it because she found these three idiots quite amusing. Mm-hmm. And that would, I mean, I've actually sort of spoken to people who basically painted that picture of a Sunday I'm evening sure. in their mm-hmm. house. But now Sunday evening in their house would be, well, the kids are on iPads because they're watching something on Netflix mm-hmm. and the parents are watching something else on Amazon Prime or whatever. Yeah, It's not as if you sit down in that cliched old way and just watch telly together. It mm. probably was one of the the last mass watched programs because, as mm. you say, before this on demand chapter came along with everyone watching their own thing on their phones or laptops and iPads. In fact, um, I have a particular fascination. I love the show, but I also have a particular fascination with the the writing behind the scenes of it of uh, the American Office. Loved the original Office, the Gervais Office. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. But become fascinated by how the American Office has become such a just this huge, almost like a cult following now of people mm-hmm. that love it. And it's it, the more I look into it, the more it must be because it was just at that time where the on-demand services hadn't yet kicked in. Mm. You know, it's, it's now the most streamed show on Netflix, I think. It's something like Is it? 36 billion oh hours God. have been wow. streamed. or it, It's figures, stratospheric figures now. Interesting. But it's because a lot of people watched it for the first time when it was a thing and it was yeah. out on TV, more so in the US. It was a couple of years late over here in the UK. And I think a lot of people were kind of like, well, yeah, but it's not as yeah, good as it's the English Yeah, about it, weren't they? I was yeah. one of those people. I, <laughs> I didn't actually allow myself to really buy into the American office until I think it had been out about nine years. <laughs> and, and it was a colleague of mine when I was at Gumball, one of my old Gumball colleagues said, oh, no, you, know, you, you need to give it a try. Like You'd actually really like it. Skip season one and go straight to season two and you'll really like it. And it was absolutely spot on. I did. And it's become this thing now where it... The, one of the common co- topics of conversation with it is that that sort of show will never exist ever again. It, because in, in the sense of it being such a big thing where so many people will go and go, oh, look, it's eight o'clock mm. on a Sunday. We must sit down yeah. and watch it all at the same time and talk about it collectively on Monday morning. I wonder, though, because there are still more recent examples, but I think it's interesting that I've noticed some in the sitcom world, American shows, almost following what I think they would call a sort of British model, which is you do mm. fewer shows and fewer series. Yeah. Because we've just discovered that Modern Family is coming off Netflix in, I think, next week. Oh. Right. And we're only halfway through because they made 11 series. Ah. And that's a lot of shows. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
and that, but that, I know, and each series has got lots of episodes in it. It's none of that sort of British six eps and you're done per series. They they do what sort of twenty show mm. runs and things. And I've noticed something like you know, the Good Place is a case in point. That how many series do they do of that? I can't remember. I, think I, did, I don't know. I stopped watching after three. Something oh, did you? Like that, yeah. It started to go a bit funny, really, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 was, I suddenly, the other day, was it that or something else where I suddenly went, did we get to the end of that? Did it, <laughs> it didn't. Oh, yes, it did. I remember how it ends now, but it was like, actually, it wasn't... I mean, it's so hard to end a show, end, end a series, yeah. in a way that's satisfying, you know, and sort of yeah. famously the Sopranos people debate whether that was a good ending or not, yeah. and mm-hmm. Breaking Bad, I think, yeah, they did Game a good of Thrones, that upset a lot oh, of people, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, God, yes. And then, uh, do you remember Six Feet Under? Yeah. I thought that ended fantastically. That was a satisfying. I remember, actually, when we were coming to the end of doing the first, you know, the, the, the third series of The Grand Tour, because we assumed that would be it. Mm. Amazon got those guys in, almost like a marketing operation, to go, we make TV now, because they hadn't bought a kind of existing asset before mm. that. They'd made original programming, and it was doing okay. But they needed a bit more of a kind of, da-da, we got these guys now. Yeah. And... That was the grand tour, and yeah, it, it yeah. did good business for them. But we sort of assumed that would be it. They didn't need the aggro to keep indulging this stuff. So it's quite a surprise mm. when, in fact, they went, "Oh, we'll have a bit more of that." But but we, you know, we made the last studio show. Still, I think in our hearts, those of us who'd worked on it a long time, so you know, Jeremy, James, and Richard, and Brian Klein, and mm. me, Andy Wilman as well, we did feel like the end of an era. Yeah, and we were debating a lot: how did we do it and do it right? to sort of bring some closure to that. And I remember saying to Jeremy, do you know what a show that really nailed it, a satisfying ending, six feet under. It was so beautiful. I went to this long description. I remember and they did this and they did that and they did that. And, it was, and, it's just, and you saw all these things and they flashed forward and it was so, so perfect. And Jeremy went, I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you got time to go away and watch it? But you do need to start at the beginning, otherwise it won't make sense. No. So I, I don't, it's hard. It is yeah. hard to... to bring things to a satisfying conclusion because that's what you want the word is satisfying you want yeah. to reward those people who've stuck with you and give them i suppose what they want mm. which i think is that is that how they ended the british office if you've got everything was, you need he says isn't it something like that as if he's talking to the crew off camera Ricky yeah Gervais. and you know it's a clever little double mm. meaning yeah. line because because they do provide you yeah. with the clothes you want. The love story's sewn up. It's just you done, d- yeah. There's still more to come. But also, but you, you know, know, there's a few little yeah. extras. Yeah. To is it a spoiler alert? I mean, that show's been out for ages. If you I haven't watched okay. it now, yeah. come on, guys. I think we're okay. It, but yeah, the whole thing with Finchie and, and David Brent sort of, you know, yeah. it's and the girlfriend. It's, it's, it yeah. is, that, that was a satisfying ending. It was. That worked. Yeah. It was. Now that was that. My, my last point was supposed to be on the book, so we will talk oh, sorry, about yeah. the books. I mean, I, 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 you know, do you know what? I, and this, well, I'm dragging the train off the tracks again. But I once, I, I once, a publisher of mine once went, "You're not very good at publicity, are you?" <laughs> so let me aid you. Uh, on that bombshell is still available to buy. It is. Um, yes. It's. It. As I've said, it's one of the greatest things I've ever read, in my opinion, because it do, it did kind of fill that that missing piece to a puzzle I didn't know was missing. And if there's anyone else of a similar age, or maybe slightly older or slightly younger, that has done that typical consumption of all episodes, be that on the BBC or Dave or YouTube or other illegal streaming services, are available. Um, then that book is going to open things up, and it's probably quite cheap now because it's been out well, for quite some time. I guarantee it's in your local charity shop. It if will be, yeah. So you know, or if you don't want my children to eat, then go there <laughs> and do that. But yes, go and find that. Uh, of course, the more recent books, um, we have to talk about boring car trivia because it's just genius. Um, oh, thank you. Um, it, I mean, it's just—it's it, so hilariously brilliant in the sense that it just shouldn't work, but yet it does because it is, as the title suggests, it is boring mm. car trivia 
it's very liberating though to call a book boring car trivia i mean these books for people who aren't familiar with them they i self-published them which you can do through amazon's um kindle direct platform now during lockdown mm. as a way of ironically uh stopping myself getting bored <laughs> and but also i mean it sounds a bit pompous but i felt i wanted to do something for other people during the nice. first lockdown yeah and oh shut up <laughs> 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 I'm gonna work in a soup kitchen you horrible man um but no it's, i was sort of i had this i think I, I i hang around on twitter quite a lot but i sort of hang around on car twitter and i know mm. that twitter can be a very ugly sewer of a place particularly if you get into the realms of you know, politics or COVID debate or whatever. But mm. but car Twitter, I think, is generally quite a good-natured world. And during the first lockdown, I was sort of just doing, you know, bits and pieces on there and just trying to trying to be sort of upbeat and not mention what was going on. Yeah. Just keep it car nerdy. And then I suddenly thought, well, what if I doubled down on the car nerdiness? Because for years I've written down, when I've heard a, 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 an arcane fact about cars, whether it's interviewing an engineer or just reading an old magazine or something written down these facts in my phone or on bits of paper or all sorts of you know notebooks and things i thought what if i just collated all these into into one thing and i think doing it myself was it was a corollary of just doing it really quickly and getting it out there just to sort of do my bit for the war effort but also (laughs) it it meant that i think if i'd done it with a publisher they'd have gone are you sure you want to call it boring (laughs) it's a little bit off-putting but but just doing myself it's like well i sort of feel like i don't care it's not you know I think it, it cuts through to the people who will want to see that kind of arcade information <laughs> in print. And it's been, it's, it's good fun to do. And it's been really nice how many people have engaged with it to the point where then it quite quickly I went, oh, I better do another one. And then inevitably this year is such an absolutely terrible tart. I just went, oh, enough people. Proper Sally Field. Go, you like me? You really like me? <laughs> yes, I'll do another one. Of course I will. I'll do it right now. And, and, but it's also because I can't stop magpieing these facts. I can't stop. I've already got in my phone some more facts that missed the cut for the third one, or that I only found out subsequently. Can you share one of your favourites that you didn't make the cut? Sure, I get, oh, okay, Please do. I'm yeah, intrigued. Okay. Um, <laughs> do you like so, it? Well, I, mean, I, I, I must. I must. Not just... so much didn't make the cut, but that actually, I suppose, like, mostly it's just things that I. Um, oh, here's a good one. <laughs> I've got to double check. So the thing is, because I should say about these books, I. I Try desperately to double check everything and make it stand up. And so if there's any doubt, be like, oh, that's yeah, not because right. you've done that wrong. It's exactly that. I cannot bear the idea as a card carrying nerd that another nerd might, you know, <laughs> out nerd you. Out nerd. Well, it's not even out nerding so much. It's just, you know, go, oh, I think you're fine. And I'll go, oh, no, I'm shriveling inside like a nerdy slug. So I, this one I haven't double checked, but you know, the Jaguar Land Rover engineering base and test track at Gaydon, yes. just up the road from here. I do know. Um, that was one of the places that was designated as an emergency landing strip for Concorde during its development <laughs> flying. Wow. That's cool. Because the runway is um, 9,000 feet long. So it's long enough for a stricken Concorde to land at. There's not oh, many runways that long. Ah. Um, which was before British Leyland bought it in the late 70s, turned it into a test track. There we go. There we are. That's made the room go quiet, though, <laughs> isn't no, it? It's, but it's, yeah, it's, again, it's one of those facts that it's, you're going to yeah, it's, it's that. But it's just stuff like that. And I saw that. I don't even know. I just came across that the other day when I was looking for something else, which is the classic mm-hmm. way of finding, mm. for me anyway, finding new boring facts is I'm actually trying to do some work. You know, I'm on a deadline to find the information for a story that I'm writing for Evo or someone. And then suddenly, half an hour later, I'm going, oh, no, I'm trying to double-check whether it's really accurate that the man <laughs> who designed the Alfa Romeo Busso engine died three days after the last one was made. 
Apparently is true. So it's yeah, yeah. It, his name was Busso, and that V6 was in all those good alphas from years ago. Um, they stopped making it, and then three days later he died. Oh, spooky. Spooky. I know, spooky. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a bit eerie. Now I hate to have to draw this to an end, but I'm getting WhatsApp messages from a certain Alex Gawley. Oh. Who I know that you've now oh, is he, very shortly oh, got to my go and off. So, uh, yeah, I've got um, Alex Goy saying, How long are you going to be? Are you done oh, yet? No. I need to talk to Richard. I think we're so you... supposed to be doing our thing in about yes, 15 minutes. That's right, you have. You have. <laughs> so, this, this has been um, absolutely brilliant, but I have told Alex Goy that you'd be four minutes. Uh, so, <laughs> precisely. I, um, I, I think we'd, we'd better wrap things up. The, the full list of books that you can buy from Richard are actually below in the um, dear listen I'm talking to you here uh, the, the the bio bit at the bottom um, so you can have a look and see all the list of books um, essentially just google them and buy them all is what well, we, for, for anybody it, who's it? not yet bought from your books what would you say is the one to buy or is it going to be the most expensive buy that uh, one yes the gold plated edition <laughs> <laughs> uh, no I don't know it depends what you like but I the boring car trivia books seem to be quite popular I would love more people to buy the spoof Roy Lanchester novel just yes. because um I don't know. It took. Well, I was going to say it took a while to. It didn't take a while to write. I, I challenged myself to write it in a month, and I did plus minus two days, I think. And it was, it was, um, it was just really good fun to do. And it's a deliberately absurd nineteen eighties Cold War thriller written by a fat alcoholic car journalist, <laughs> which is you know write what you know. Increasingly <laughs> <laughs> uh, corpulent, and uh, the rest of it is also true. So I, yeah, I, uh, but I don't know. Just uh, all of them. Buy all, all of them. Buy them all. I don't know because the ones that did well sometimes are the ones I'm not. You know, there's, there's one that I did for Top Gear called uh, Motorist's Handbook, and it's ridiculous. And they never told me to not do it in the way that I did it, and it's absolutely panned on Amazon reviews people thought it was awful but I was really pleased with it because it's incredibly stupid Um, and it has nothing about Top Gear in it at all incredible well go and buy that one and leave nice reviews I guess if you wouldn't buy is is the fix is the fix Uh, likewise for this podcast why not leave a nice (laughs) review we have to ask this these days because that's how the algorithms and things work is it Um, yeah you have to ask for it and remind people to give stars and uh, it's all a bit um, yeah, I heard you on one of the recent episodes saying "call to action." Yes, and this <laughs> is your I've call only to recently action. discovered that phrase. And it's like, <laughs> but there we are, um, Richard Porter. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so no, much. Thank you for having for, me, um, coming along. Um, may we uh, do more silly car things in the future, uh, Amy? Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you, dear listener, for listening. Go and do the, the stars and the reviews and things and listen to that other podcast that you already listened to and buy all the books. And uh, we shall speak to you again, no doubt, next week. Thank you and goodbye. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com.